This week on Your Western Context, Canada could send tanks to Ukraine, but are they operational? We detail the problems with Canada's catch-and-release criminal justice system, and phantom emails from the UCP create controversy. Also, yet another Liberal minister has ethics problems. This is Western Context, episode 303, recorded Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Foodies, fishing, and fearmongering. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Western Context. Patrick and myself are back this week, and as we head into head into January and through January, rather this week, we're seeing a bunch of news uh, about Canada's contributions here domestically, but also some interesting stories abroad in concert with our usual BC and Alberta stories that we'll be bringing to you guys this week. Yes, there's definitely lots of news this week. Uh, news that really hasn't been covered fairly by the mainstream media, and some news that has been brought to the attention of the various provincial and federal governments that uh, we have. And uh, certainly there's a lot to discuss that uh, really just hasn't gotten the attention that they deserve. That's right. And if you're joining us for the first time, Western Context is the podcast that aims to cut through media bias and sensationalism from wherever you, wherever you find your media, whether it's uh, from the TV machine, the radio machine, or online. We'll take all that news find the bias and sensationalism, and in removing it, hopefully we'll provide all the information and context necessary to put you, our listeners, on the right side of the news. And we're going to start with our Canada story this week, and if you want to follow along, we have full show notes available at westerncontext.ca. Now, of course, this, this story goes to our contribution towards the war in Ukraine, and this conflict is edging closer and closer to its year milestone and with that is coming renewed calls for allies to provide bigger stronger and more hard-hitting military hardware now some of the hardware that canada is considering providing are our fleet of leopard 2 main battle tanks now it's unlikely though that our tanks will be sent because it's very possible though not 100% confirmed by the department of defense that our tanks have been neglected to a point where they are inoperable now, the last time the tanks served in combat was in Afghanistan, and they came home from that deployment in 2011. With that, we're going to be sending armored personnel carriers and light armored vehicles made by Ukrainian refugees here in Canada, but that doesn't begin to answer the question of more heavy weapons support from our country. Now, alongside the pledges and aid come the requirements of the logistics and the idea that if the Europeans are going to be providing Leopard tanks, then it would make sense for us to do so as well. Now, on the tanks, no decision has been made yet as to whether or not Leopard tanks from not just Canada but all countries will be sent. Germany and other allies have to come to a consensus to see if this is the right move at this time. Now, on this, Germany is going to have a significant amount of input in the decision because it would mean that their designed hardware would be fighting on the battlefield in Ukraine. Now, back at home, this question becomes a little more murky. We have 82 Leopard 2 tanks in total, 20 of which have been modified with additional armor, digital fire control, and modern sighting systems. This means that they're ready for service, but it's unlikely that we'd send these tanks because we probably want to keep these in our column should we need to call them up to service to serve NATO in Latvia. Another 20 have been modified with additional armor, longer barrels, and these tanks are the ones that could be sent to Ukraine with a few further upgrades. But that leaves the question of the other 40 or so that have been sitting in storage since they've been bought, and these use old analog technology and haven't had any upgrades since their 1980s hardware from when we are from rather when they were designed and built. Now, the Department of Defense did not provide an answer to the National Post on this story, and as such, we don't know the exact number of tanks that we have that are actually able to fight in our country. It's probably about 20, but it could be as high as 40. With that, this raises the question of what happens to the other vehicles that are just sitting. We purchased these tanks in 2007 with the idea of using them in Afghanistan, but the bulk of them have just remained sitting in storage. 
As such, these tanks aren't being used, and they're getting old, pushing 40 years at this point, and with that, they might be slated to just be decommissioned, which means that they'd be gutted of any classified hardware or uh, software systems, and then just used for target practice. Now, two papers published by the Canadian Forces College in 2018 and 2022 said that the entire fleet is probably barely usable and that the maintenance and repair costs would exceed the budgets that we have allocated by the Department of Defense. And even if we wanted to, we couldn't deploy more than a handful of the collection of tanks that we have. So to recap the story, we don't know the number of vehicles that can be deployed, which is fine. That can be seen as a national security protection mechanism. But the information that we do have suggests that they aren't being taken care of in terms of the military hardware. And at the very least, this means that our investment on them is lacking. The research papers are also well documented. And at the very least, after all of the discussion on sending Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine, somebody has to ask the government what our armor stockpile looks like presently. The National Post claims to have asked this question, but nobody has responded. Time will tell, of course, if the tanks go to Europe, and if they don't, Canadians in the media will need to ask more questions of their government of whether or not our expensive military hardware is just sitting and rotting to waste. Yes, we're seeing this a lot with a lot of different... uh things with the military, especially as it's not really in use that much as the Canadian military doesn't really get involved in that many wars. And so a lot of our hardware, um, from guns to tanks to the Navy, uh, is just not uh, really taken care of as much as it should, especially because the defense budget that comes in from the federal government, which under Trudeau has been very uh, reticent to really take care of the military and properly fund it, especially with the U.S. Uh, uh, continually calling for uh, a higher defense spending through uh, NATO that we still have not met under any stripe of government. So, you know, it's it comes down to the fact that uh, Canada has this decision to uh, send Leopard tanks, but at the same time, if they do so, will we be properly defended if uh, something happens. Now, generally, it's regarded that Canada would not have to fight on our own home territory um, as an invasion of Canada uh, would be either totally catastrophic or just not feasible, uh, given the fact that we share the same landmass with the United States and given the fact that our neighbor to the north over the North Pole is Russia, um, it's very unlikely that tanks would be that useful as as Navy ships or aircraft in that particular scenario. Uh, so at this point, it's hard to tell uh, exactly the answers as to whether our leopards are um, even feasible to send to Ukraine at this point, um, given that we're half a world away from them. And uh, Poland seems to be very eager to send them equipment because they're, of course, much closer to the problem. And uh, it's it's hard to tell exactly what the answer is here because nobody in the government is really giving answers on our military capabilities. And, you know, this is something that hasn't really been asked by that many people before as well. Yeah, and, and it raises a, the big question, of course, for all Canadians in the entire um, defense establishment in our country, of which not much does exist compared to what we have in the U.S., of course. But what we have to look at on that, does it make sense for us to be purchasing these huge amounts of military hardware, in this case tanks, not using them and then just letting them deteriorate to a point where the money that goes into them is effectively going to be used for target practice? And a lot of uh, Canadians probably didn't know that that would be happening. And of course, this is a this is a decision that pre predates this government and would have had to have been carried through by the former government and the current government. But as as you mentioned, it was something that goes across many different years, many different governments. We don't hit that 2% NATO spending on there. And this is one of those things where we could easily put some more money into this to guarantee that our, our fleet of uh, tanks, at the very least, are able to be used in combat should 
the need arise, but they aren't. And it's really not a question that Canadians discuss. It's not a question the opposition discusses, and it's not something that the media discusses much at all. That's why that was uh, one of our interesting stories this week here on Western Context. And of course, if you want to help us and support the podcast and what we do, you can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Western Context. And there we offer three tiers of support, starting from as little as $2 a month. You can help us remove bias and sensationalism from the news and media. For $5 a month, you can continue to help us do that, and you can have your name read out on the podcast if you want. And for $10 a month, you can become a Western Context Insider and gain an insight into our work and gain pre-release access to our production and show notes throughout the entire week. Now, of course, when we reach $30 a month in contributions, patrons will receive an exclusive monthly news article expanding on topical stories of the month, and this article will continue to provide the context and information you've come to expect from us. At $60 a month, we'll do a news and review podcast every other month where we reflect on the news of the month in a candid way and provide opinion on where affairs might be headed next. And, of course, we also do have an option to make a one-time contribution as well, via PayPal, which you can learn more about at westerncontext.ca slash support. And with that, we head into our BC story where we're going to be talking about the criminal justice system. Yes, the justice system in BC has been long decried as a catch and release system where police will arrest criminals, crown prosecutors will bring cases against the criminals, and then the judges either let them go or the case gets dismissed due to a lack of resources. Now, oftentimes the criminal is let back out onto the streets again on bail as they wait for a court appearance that never actually happens. Now, sadly, this is not just a BC problem, it's also happening elsewhere in Canada, too, as overall crime rates have been steadily going up since Justin Trudeau took office back in 2016. Now, even in NDP-run British Columbia, justice officials have been publicly acknowledging that Canada's system of catch-and-release justice has caused a public safety crisis. Now, it's hard to get all 10 Canadian provinces uh, to agree on much, and especially when those provinces include uh, Quebec and Alberta, which have time and time again uh, tend to buck the trend that goes on in the rest of the provinces. Uh, but last week, they did agree that the state of the country's bail system is a disaster. In a Friday letter sent to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, the premiers of all 13 provinces and territories urged immediate action to strengthen Canada's bail system. Now, the appeal was prompted by a string of incidents in recent months in which innocent Canadians, including first responders, have been either seriously injured or killed by an offender who was out on bail for an earlier violent charge. Now, the National Post has a, a great comprehensive list that we will link in our supplemental articles of its incidents in Canada just over the last few weeks uh, where repeat offenders or people arrested for crimes multiple times have caused trouble in various communities across the country. Now, while Trudeau is focused on meaningless and costly gun bans that only take guns out of lawfully registered gun owners' hands, instead the focus should be on Canada's bail system, which gives too much power to those who do not abide by Canada's gun laws in the first place. Now, in particular, Ontario Provincial Police Commissioner Thomas Carrick uh, called for changes following the death of Constable Gregor Spirchala uh, back in December. Now, Randall McKenzie, who was out on bail and had a lifetime ban from owning a firearm in the first place, had been charged with first-degree murder in the fatal shooting. And McKenzie had initially been denied bail in a separate case involving assault and weapons charges, but was released after a review. Now, the premiers specifically call for the creation of a reverse onus for those charged under Section 95 of the Criminal Code, which includes offenses for being in possession of a loaded, prohibited, or restricted firearm. Now, this means that people charged with those defenses would have to show why their detention before trial is not justified. In most cases, the burden is on the prosecution to show why detention is justified. And Canadians currently have a right under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms to, quote, not be denied reasonable bail without just cause. 
Now, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe said that the Premier sent the letter to have the federal government look at bail reform. He said something that really should be obvious to us all. He said, quote, I would say that catch and release works well when you're fishing. It doesn't work so well when you're dealing with serious offenders. And that is our quote of the week this week because it shows uh, very well the very the big differences between fishing and policing. Now, in Saskatchewan, apparently approximately 5,500 people are out on bail and have violated the conditions of their bail, according to Mo. And he says, quote, we have some numbers that I think are just simply too high. We have, I think, about 5,500 folks that are out on bail and have violated the conditions of their bail. And there's an active warrant for their arrest. Now, not all of those are dangerous by any stretch, but we have about 1,300 to 1,500 that are serious offenders and have violated their bail. Now, federal conservative leader Pierre Polyev said in late December that Trudeau's government should reverse its catch and release bail policy, referring to Bill C-75 that the Liberals passed in 2019 that updated bail provisions in the criminal code. Now, the law codified a principle of restraint that had been reaffirmed in a 2017 Supreme Court case, which directs police and courts to prioritizing releasing detainees at the, quote, earliest reasonable opportunity and, quote, on the least onerous conditions, even in cases where they have been repeatedly committed crimes or are considered a danger to the public. Now, it also gave police more power to impose conditions on accused people in the community to streamline the bail process and to reduce the number of unnecessary hearings, and it required judges to consider at bail the circumstances of people who are either Indigenous or come from other vulnerable populations. Now, Polyev said that this uh, change to the bail system led to a 32% increase in violent crime and a 92% increase in gang-related crime in 2020. He said that instead of addressing the issue, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau fear-mongered, in in Polyev's words, against law-abiding firearms owners by trying to pass legislation that would ban certain hunting rifles. Now, Polyev believes that Repeat offenders pose the biggest risk to public safety. He argued that the system should be reformed so that those who are facing serious charges and have multiple convictions on their records should have to prove that it is, in fact, safe for them to re-enter society. He said, quote, It's not that we have a lots of criminals. It's that we have a very small number of repeat offenders that continue to do more and more crime. Now, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says that his government is looking carefully and quickly at a letter that Canada's premier sent him last week that called for reforms to the country's bail system, acknowledging that, quote, there's a real concern out there, but he declined to comment further. Now, back to BC, the Globe and Mail has a story that details the long list of 38 crimes that one man named Mohammed Majibur has committed since 2014 and details how each time Majidpur went straight back to committing crimes almost immediately after being released from jail. For instance, just this past November, he was arrested for allegedly stealing $300 worth of leggings from H&M just 148 minutes after being released from jail, where he was being held for allegedly committing a hate-motivated assault against a 19-year-old student. Now, the Globe and Mail article argues that Mojinpur's long criminal history offers a case study in the way that BC's courts treat the tiny number of people who repeatedly assault strangers, often people they encounter on the street or retail workers trying to stop them from shoplifting. Now, these offenders, most of whom are battling homelessness, mental health issues, addictions, or all three, uh, personal crises at once, routinely spend a few weeks or months in provincial jail before being released. Now, oftentimes, they're arrested again within days or weeks of their release. Now, in October, Kevin Falcon, who is the leader of the BC Liberal Party, continued a campaign to ratchet up political pressure on the province's ruling New Democrats by rising the legislature to recount Mr. Majibur's latest alleged offenses, and he said that they were evidence that the, quote, crisis on our streets is going from bad to worse. 
Now BC's new premier, David Eby, pledged during his first days on the job in November to put a stop to this revolving door of catch and release, which he said is eroding the public's confidence in the courts. But to do so, he will have to contend with systemic problems that are deeply entrenched. So it's clear that a lot needs to be done, but quite clearly the issues that Canada has faced over the past year since the problem of repeat offenders was originally brought up, I've shown that the system as it stands clearly isn't working. And while promises have been made by the BC government, it may be up to the federal government to decide if they want to actually tackle the problem or just make it worse. And, and the story, we, we follow this story, um, and it would be one thing if this was a BC-only problem, and then you could see the dynamic forming between the BC Liberals and the BC NDP. Same thing if you take this story to Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan Party versus Saskatchewan NDP, and so on and so forth. But when you bring this up to the highest level, the Supreme Court gets involved, you have the Criminal Code of Canada becoming a question, it becomes a federal issue. And as the start of the story mentioned, 13 provinces and territories in unanimous agreement on this, as they have been, will underscore, as they have been many, many times, while Justin Trudeau has been prime minister, that says something. And this is something that often isn't talked about that much in the media. Of course, we saw it a little bit when it came to the economic inequities that we saw that in terms of fiscal stabilization payments that uh, Alberta did end up getting raised a little, though not as much as uh, Premier Jason Kenney at the time wanted. We are seeing more and more these days the, the premiers of the provinces standing united going against what the federal government is saying because the federal government is trying to run the country in very much a top-down kind of way where, as we mentioned, 13 provinces and territories combined all want the same thing. They all want a different outcome on this, but the federal government isn't listening on this. And that's something that needs to be taken away because I get back to my main point on this is that that's not talked about in the media. If you look at the media, you would assume to say that there's always going to be some sort of uh, rogue element going on. One day it might be Quebec, another day it might be Alberta or some uh, contentious policy put forward by Scott Moe or Doug Ford, but rarely do we see that united front. And it has been happening over the recent years. It's here, but the media just really doesn't talk about it and does don't give it as much attention as they should because as we all know controversy sells and that's why we're not seeing that yes especially controversy sells but also there is controversy with this story because the differences between uh, the provincial governments of many different stripes and the federal government but many of the media stories on this issue really have not co- talked that much about the federal government's impact on the system in fact if you're if you're um, looking at this before this letter that was sent by the premiers, uh, you you would be mistaken uh, for believing that it was mostly a provincial issue, that it could just be held in your province wherever you were in Canada. But it comes down to it that the fact that the federal government actually has a lot to do with the policies that are made with the criminal justice system in each of the provinces. And it's something that not just BC, not just Saskatchewan or Ontario or Alberta, no matter where you are, it's not just those particular provinces that are dealing with this problem. It's all of them. And all of them are, um, all of the governments are saying that the federal government needs to look at the changes that they made in 2019 that have just gotten worse and made the problem uh, even even worse as the years have gone by since then. And, uh, you know, it's it comes down to the fact that when the 13 provinces and territories agree on something, well, it's 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 worth taking a look at. Now, all we've got from the uh, federal government on this is a quote from Justin Trudeau, where they said they're going to look at it. Um, and a quote from the Minister of Justice, David Lametti, who says that they're not going to rush into changing bail conditions because um, they they say that it, it would disproportionately impact marginalized communities and indigenous people. But of course, Pierre Polyev's argument is that the um, violent crime that's happening by these repeat offenders is disproportionately affecting 
marginalized communities and lower income people to begin with. So, you know, there's two different approaches that seem to be coming at the same um, same angle on this is that we don't want minorities and lower income people and indigenous to be affected by this, but they're being affected regardless. And quite clearly something needs to change on that. And I think when it comes down to it, this is something that the federal government needs to look at. They need to be doing this in concert with the provincial governments. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's a problem that's been going on for quite some time. We've highlighted it many different times on Western Context before, and the governments are saying that they're going to look into it. But months have gone by. The violent crime still keeps stacking up. Every every week we see another incident where some random person gets stabbed by someone who was out on bail uh, for committing crimes in the past that they're not locked up for. And every day that goes by that this government uh, decides to not do anything about the issue is another day where another criminal gets the chance to reoffend, And that's really something that the media hasn't talked about. And it's why this problem is still ongoing and nothing has really been done to address it. That's right. And it, it's only going to get better when the federal government sees this as an issue. And a lot of the people who are looking at... Um, Issues that seem very provincial in this day and age. Um, at the same time, if you make a change at the top of the federal government, a lot of those issues would disappear. And I think that's something a lot of people uh, are hopefully starting to realize. And that's why this story needs to gain so much more prominence. But for our Alberta story this week, we're going to continue on the angle of justice and go back to the fundamental, uh, the core fundamentals of Western context. And that's media bias in reporting, and reporting based on hearsay at best. And we'll see by the time we're done with this if this story can be labeled as fake news. So, to start on Friday, Global Edmonton reported a story that somebody in the Premier's office had sent emails to prosecutors regarding the Coots border blockade last year and questioned the judgment of the prosecutors. Now, the Crown says they have no recollection of receiving any such emails. And at this point, Daniel Smith's office says that they don't know if the allegations are true and if they are appropriate, action will be taken. As such, they're actually conducting an investigation to see if any emails were sent. Now, we have to ask the question, what don't they know? Or rather, why don't the media know of what's happening with this story? Why don't they know about it? Well, the answer is actually quite simple, and it's going to make everybody just sit with their jaws open. The original reporters from CBC Calgary actually don't know about this either. They don't know about the story that they're reporting on. According to the CBC, the emails were sent last fall, and the CBC has agreed to not identify the source that came to them. But, and here's the biggest thing, the CBC themselves, who broke this in their words exclusive story, they haven't actually seen the emails either. They haven't seen any of them. As far as as far as they're concerned, and as far as we're concerned, they might not even exist. Yet here we are. The narrative has changed from the just transition legislation that was being talked about quite a bit this past week to the point where uh, the the discussion on that even got NDP leader Rachel Lantley to go against what the Trudeau government was saying on this and blame both the Trudeau government and UCP government for the rhetoric happening around the just transition legislation. And that was the, the main story of the week in the province until Thursday. And the NDP was on defense with that. But here we are, the narrative has changed. And now we're playing to a story that's much, much more friendly to the NDP. Now, NDP MLA Rocky Panacholi said that this UCP chaos is completely unacceptable in democracy. The public must have confidence that the prosecutions are not being influenced by whether the accused have friends in the premier's office. Now, analysts on Global are even suggesting that this is another black mark on the UCP government, with another of them going even as far as suggesting that since Daniel Smith was sympathetic to the people at the Coots blockade, the premier's office might have decided to do this. Now, we're talking, continuing to talk about the analysts in question here. Another one even suggested going as far to the UCP caucus and seeing if they're 
okay with this because in their own words, Danielle Smith needs to command the confidence of the legislature, which when you read between those lines, it's almost as though saying that the UCP caucus members should rise up and and table a motion of non-confidence against the government over this story. That's what that comes down to when you read between the lines of what the political analysts on Global are saying. Now, unwinding this all, we need to realize that this entire story across at least two news outlets and more, once we realize that the Toronto Star has even been involved in this, was spawned by allegations where the original news outlet, original reporters on this story have not even seen the emails in question. They don't know what they said. They don't even know if they're real. That's the kind of reporting we're dealing with here. CBC's reporting then went on to discussing the email that they do not have a copy of, and they also went back to say that there was an email that was sent earlier in the year by Assistant Deputy Minister Kim Goddard of the Justice Department to the Alberta Crown Prosecution Service. That is one email that they do have uh, that they do have a copy of and they have seen, but that's entirely separate from the story that we're talking about this week. Now, on this note, Smith has said that uh, since it's now possible to, it's now, she now knows that it's not possible to have pardons in the provinces. That's not a mechanism that exists in Canadian law and, and has effectively dropped the idea of pursuing pardons for those who might have broken COVID rules. And this is something that she campaigned on, but at the same time, you do a little bit of reading into the way the Canadian justice system works. We know that we don't have a mechanism for that. And for people who do want a mechanism like that, well, that's something that we can talk about next time the next federal election campaign comes around. But we could stop at this. But as the saying goes, things, good or bad, come in threes. And as I mentioned, the Toronto Star is also running with this story, again, admitting that there are no details and nobody has seen the emails. The Star also made a point to go back and highlight Daniel Smith's, Daniel Smith's controversial, in their own words, opinions from her time as an opinion talk show host. Now, the difference was clear in, then, in that back in, the, back in the day, Daniel Smith was actually running an opinion show. Well, most of the news that we see, including these three stories from Global Edmonton, CBC Calgary, and the Toronto Star, are in fact news masquerading as opinion. The, the the Toronto Star headline ends with critics say, but at this point, it's just been the NDP opposition based off of the one CBC Calgary story without any actual evidence. And when you look at this being critics, that's exactly what the official opposition is literally paid to do. Now, looking at what happened today on this uh, rare breaking news on a Saturday, the UCP held an emergency caucus meeting in the morning to discuss the allegations, and the Premier announced that throughout the weekend, the public service, in coordination with the government IT teams, will be examining emails that were sent from the Premier's office to see if any were sent to the Crown prosecutors. Now, this showcases again why even the government themselves have no idea what's going on in this case or what the emails might have even been that are in question. And that's where the matter of trust comes in. Media organizations count on the trust of their readers and their listeners, and that trust has been continually eroding and was one of the core reasons that we started this podcast. And at this point, it's impossible to trust the media on this story without being able to verify the context behind their claims. We'll let you know if and when this changes. Now, many things that come about as a result of investigations by the media into government actions, especially actions that various governments would want to cover up, uh, generally there are light on details. And of course, there may be unnamed sources that come about as a result of this investigation that, of course, the media doesn't want to name the source because, uh, one, they'll lose the source, and two, it'll probably be someone that isn't authorized to speak on those uh, particular issues and could get fired or maybe even worse. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, you know murky situations that happen where we don't really have concrete evidence. But it seems like this story in particular uh, seems like there is a lot of... Uh, controversy surrounding this story, original story from CBC Calgary, where there really is no details and they can't even 
uh, verify that this is actually a thing that's been going on, just that a source has talked about it. And there's really no evidence that the media members had actually seen before they rushed the story to print. Of course, seeing that controversy sells, uh, able to come up with a story that the uh, government is trying to influence actions in the judiciary, which of course is a big no-no in Canada because of the independent judiciary that is very much separate from how the government operates. But as we saw in our previous story, uh, the government definitely does set a tone as to how the judiciary operates and their policies are able to influence how court cases will go on in the future. Maybe not individual ones uh, specifically, such as we saw with the the Coots border blockade, but, you know, as a general sense as to how uh, different governments are able to influence how the judiciary actually uh, approaches cases based on the criminal laws that are set up in this country. Now, of course, this is something that the federal government has more impact with um, as they have more control over uh, the criminal justice code. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot to talk about in this story. Uh, that really just didn't get shed uh, shed light on because the media just doesn't know what is the actual source on this. They don't know what the emails are, and uh, the government seems to not know what's going on either on this issue because um, it seems like everyone involved is very surprised that this was actually a thing. So, and if we if we don't really get more um, information on this story, it's really hard to know exactly what's going on. And well, as as you said, the uh, media has been uh, masquerading their opinions as news, but um, it's the opinion of everyone involved that there should be uh, very clear-cut uh, cases going on with this. But there's really no light that's been shed on this story that uh, really shows exactly what's been going on. Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's a major departure from journalistic norms, because if we go back to some of the biggest stories of the of the 20th century, like... Watergate, like the Vietnam War, uh, could go on and so on and so on and so on with that. The typical angle that was always taken with that was that you have two independent, distinct sources who are going to be able to provide the same information to your media outlet. And then the journalists, or in the case of very sensitive things, the editor or even higher, will verify that the material does exist and then give the go on the story. And it's very clear from this that we have one source and there's no information and there's no independent verification on this, yet it has it has completely shifted the narrative in the province. And as a result of that, I don't know if the media is aware of what they're doing with this or what the impact of this could potentially be, especially as we head into election season. And that's why this is, is something we're talking about this week. And it's a very traditional uh, Western context story. But we're going traditional again. And as we know, it has become a pattern of behavior with the Trudeau government and his ministers. And that's what we have another case of in our firing line this week. Yes, in our firing line, we have a very interesting story where we have yet another case of a conflict of interest that is coming up with uh, in regards to one of Justin Trudeau's cabinet ministers. Now, Housing Minister Ahmed Hussein's office admitted that his senior staffer is the sister of the director of a foodie communications firm that re received over $93,000 in constituency funds. Now, Hussein's office confirmed that his director of policy, Tia Tariq, is sisters with Hiba Tariq, who is the director of a brand called Munch More Media, which is a company that has been receiving many lucrative contracts to help Ahmad Hussein reach out to his constituents of his riding of York Southwestern. Now, however, Hussein's office said that the arrangement was disclosed to the Federal Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner. Uh, spokesperson for Hussein's office, Brittany Hendrich, said that, quote, Tia Tariq has not been involved at all in any of the ways that Munchmore Media assists Minister Hussein as a member of parliament to his constituents. We take these obligations very seriously when it comes to this. Everything, it was disclosed, and the rules were followed in this case. 
Now, lobbying records show that Tia Tariq has been working with Hussein since at least 2017 when he was Minister of Immigration and has held a number of positions with Hussein's office since. Now, she now serves as Hussein's Director of Policy. Iba Tariq, who is her sister, is the director of the PR firm Much More Media Inc., which, as we mentioned, is a foodie communications firm in Toronto. In a December 2015 Instagram post, Heba tagged a fellow Instagram user, identifying them as siblings. Now, Much More Media has received at least $93,000 in communications work for Hussein's York Southwestern constituency office since January of 2021. So this is just in the past two years. And the contracts coincide with Tia Tariq's time as senior advisor to Hussein. Now, Hussein declined any interview requests when to uh, talk about this issue. And when asked directly if Hussein had any personal relationship with anyone at Munchmore Media, the minister's office did not address the question, only saying that Hussein followed House of Commons rules in awarding the contracts. Now, after additional questions were asked about the relation between the sisters, only then did Hussein's office admit to the familial connection between his director of policy and the firm handling his constituency communications. Now, when asked if she had a personal relationship with Hussein prior to the contracts, Kiba Tariq, who is the uh, of course, the director of Munchmore Media, uh, responded that she did not. And after follow-up questions, she confirmed that she did know Hussein's former director of policy, one Abdikir Ahmed. And Ahmed confirmed that he's also the co-director of what is called Empire of Goodness, which is a non-profit organization and works with Hiba Tariq. Now, the Global News asked the Ethics Commissioner's Office whether it did, in fact, sign off on the decision by Minister Hussein's office to award these contracts to Munchmore Media and whether the Commissioner was aware of the familial connection between Tia and Hiba Tariq. And a spokesperson for the office said that it could not answer the questions, explaining that any advice that it provides is confidential, as are any requests for advice received by the office. Now, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's office also refused to answer specific questions about the contracts between Hassan and Munchmore Media, including when they were made aware of the arrangements and if the office is comfortable with a minister using constituency funds for contracts with a senior staffer's family. Now, this is where the story gets more interesting because Marcy Ian, who is the Minister of Women and Gender Equality, who won the by-election in Toronto Centre after Finance Minister Bill Morneau resigned, well, it turns out that she also gave $10,000 in constituency contracts to Munchmore Media, and before Tia Tariq was Director of Policy for Hussein, she was working as Ian's Director of Policy. Now, clearly there is a reason why all of these funds went to Munchmore Media in the first place. But in a statement, a spokesperson for Ian said that the lobbying registry incorrectly identified Tariq as Ian's director of policy. Johis Namira, who is Ian's press secretary, said that, quote, Marcy Ian has not met nor interacted with Heba Tariq, both now as minister or in her capacity as the member of parliament for Toronto Centre. She was also not privy to any existing relationships between staff of Munchmore Media and to the office of Minister Hussein. Now, when it comes down to it, this is just a pattern of behavior from Trudeau's Liberals and his cabinet ministers. In December, just this past month, Trade Minister Mary Ng apologized for breaking ethics rules in relation to $17,000 in contracts that were awarded to the firm of her friend, Liberal commentator Amanda Alvaro. Ethics Commissioner Mario Dion said at the time, quote, there is simply no excuse for contracting with the Friends Company. And back in 2020, then-Toronto MP Yasmin Ratanzi resigned from the Liberal caucus after it came to light that she had hired her sister to work in her constituency office. At the time, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that he was, quote, dis- deeply disappointed by the rele- revelations Uh, describing them as unacceptable. Now, the only way that these ethics violations will stop is if there's an actual penalty for politicians who break the rules set in place, or if those politicians are replaced. And if the public feels that these issues 
are not worthy of electing different politicians, then the system will just continue as is. And it raises many questions, too, about whether people um, elect uh, the politician in question because of the color of the party that they represent, or if it's the actual uh, person in question that they're choosing. And as a result of this, this is, seems like it's every month or at least every other month we have a story of a liberal MP or a liberal, liberal cabinet minister that has some sort of transgression with the ethics commissioner on this. And I'm I'm certain that everybody listening to the podcast will know that Mario Dion has become a very common name that we've talked about many, many times on this podcast. And it, it really raises the question of... Are Canadians okay with this when presented with these stories? And if they're not, are they going to change the government or do they want the system to change? That's option one. And option two is that they're completely not aware of what's happening as a result of the way the media reports on these stories. And if the answer is no to the first one, well, then we have some questions about why Canadians are okay with the system working like this and raises more ethical questions in general. But for the second one, which is likely what's going on here, it comes down to the fact that the media and their reporting on these stories is often uh, given up for bigger stories of the week in their eyes, the ones that can sell more views, more clicks, and and are, are effectively the shiny object in the room compared to these stories. Because as, as we say, most of the news that we see day-to-day uh, doesn't necessarily pertain to the government, but at the same time, anything that is government-based is inherently dealing with taxpayers' money, which anybody who pays taxes in this country has a right to talk about. And even if somebody doesn't pay taxes, it comes down to a very simple matter of ethical government, which is something that would be interesting to see a, a general summary of on the Trudeau administration once they're set and gone. Yeah, so it's, it's, it should be said that uh, this Trudeau government has had many ethics violations that have happened over the past few years, almost in a sense that they have normalized these ethics violations as just something that happens with government. Uh, before the Trudeau government, we would see issues like this crop up and there would be actual serious social consequences uh, for politicians who do this. But as we've seen with so many of the cabinet ministers in Trudeau's government, even newer ones that have not not been elected that long ago as Marcy Ian was, has seen that there is definitely uh, the the potential for these conflict of interest to happen. And it's when they're brought to light, uh, they're not really they're not really uh, dwelled upon and there's nothing that really changes in the system. You know, and uh, when we look at this, there's uh, many Canadians right now that are struggling with their finances and um, needing to uh, use food banks at a larger percentage than ever before, uh, struggling with inflation as grocery stores uh, prices are continuing to go up, uh, gas uh, and oil, home heating, all of that's continuing to go up. And on the other hand, we have the uh, ministers of the liberal government that are uh, giving away thousands of tens of thousands of dollars uh, to their friends and political insiders and people that are related to the people that work for them. And, uh, you know, it's 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 a problem when we see this. And, you know, the minister of housing, who is himself a landlord, uh, seems to not really care about conflicts of interest. Uh, that are going on. And that's probably why we have such an issue uh, with the issues that we do is because the liberal government just doesn't want to fix them because there's really no consequences uh, to doing so. And that's something that uh, should be uh, put in question. And if, as the minister's office said, that everything was cleared with the federal ethics commissioner and that everything was above board, we have to ask ourselves, why exactly was it all these thousands of dollars going to Munch More Media? What was the work that they were doing? And why exactly, um, you know, why, why were they the ones that were chosen? And uh, it's, it's hard to actually tell because if you go to look up Munch More Media, they've tried to delete their website. They've deleted their social media. And only, uh, only through the Internet Wayback Machine can we actually see that they really only had a few followers on on Twitter and Instagram. And one of those was 
the the official account for Ahmed Hussein. So you have to wonder, well, who exactly knew about this? And we seem to know exactly who it was, but the minister, of course, doesn't want to admit to anything, and uh, Trudeau doesn't want to seem to fix any of these systemic problems that have led to so many of his cabinet ministers being caught in ethics violations, because, of course, he himself has been caught in many different ethics violations over the years, and nothing has really come about because of it. And uh, his government has been elected uh, many different times now, be in despite of all these problems that have been uh, coming to light over the years. Uh, so, you know, we have to look at the consequences of these actions and find out that because of what's going on, there's really nothing that has been uh, taken place on this issue because nobody seems to care. And the only way that this issue will actually have consequences is in the next federal election if the people decide that this uh, that is not, enough is enough and that these violations need to stop. And, of course, we'll uh, be watching that as we head into that next election, whether that's this year, the next year, or in uh, 2025, as they uh, they say the plan is going to be on that. And it, it is really a pattern of behavior at the end of the day, and, and we've seen the exact same thing as well, where there's companies that have very few followers and very small presence getting huge sums of money. And you have to wonder why this is continuing and in particular are these people getting into government to make their friends and people around them rich with government money and and lucrative grants and uh giveaways and such for helping out for you know the the simplest of things as it is in here but at at the end of the day um this definitely doesn't smash pass the smell test or i guess you could say taste test in this case since that's what uh, they were going for on this with uh, with the foodie firm, and I guess with that, that's uh, a good time to move on to our word of the week. Yes, our word of the week this week is foodie, which of course came up in the Ahmed Hussein article that we talked about. Now, of course, some think the term foodie is a compliment, an acknowledgement of a passionate interest in food. And, of course, others consider it a pejorative where a foodie is frivolous and trend-following and not to be taken seriously. So, of course, a foodie has many different ways that you can use it in a sentence. But in this particular case, it's been referring to Munchmore Media, which is a so-called foodie communications firm that has now deleted all of its social media and all of its... Uh, uh, ties in it in an effort to hide what is actually going on with the connection with the federal government. And of course, foodie is an interesting term because uh, you can use it in many different ways. But in this particular case, it's something that's not being looked on very favorably. Yeah. And of course, it's a term that many people uh, listening to the podcast might not be aware of. And it's very much a, a term, I think, that, that fits within the, the type of firm uh, that was hired on that. And that's what we, we aim to cover the entire breadth of the story on everything from our firing line to our provincial segments to our Canada story each and every week. Uh, we have full show notes uh, that you can find at westerncontext.ca. You can also uh, subscribe to the podcast on any number of podcast listeners out there. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Pocket Casts, uh, Spotify, and more. Just visit westerncontext.ca slash subscribe. And, of course, we're also on Twitter and Facebook where we uh, share the shows each and every week and some of the stories that we're looking at. So with that being said, we'll be back next week for another episode of Western Context. And we'll be sure to look through all the stories that the mainstream media talks about and a lot that they don't talk about in covering the news of the week and how it matters to Canadians. Now, we'll find these stories, whether they're in radio, TV, print, or online, and we'll find them and give you the context needed to put yourselves on the right side of the news. So with that said, we'll be back next week for another episode of Western Context. <laughs>